the life of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the Meccan period, by Imam Anwar al-Awlaqi. The next important event is the marriage of Rasulullah sallallahu to Khadija. Khadija was a well-known and prosperous woman in Mecca. She was wealthy. She wasn't married. She was older in age. And she used to hire men to travel for her and do business. Because you know that the trade of the people of Mecca used to be based on traveling to Yemen and Syria, Asham. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes that uh, in Surah Quraysh. They had a journey of winter and a journey of summer. One to Yemen and one to Asham. So Khadija would hire men to work for her and uh, take care of her business. She happened to hire Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. She heard about his honesty. And she was running into trouble with a lot of men not being honest. So she wanted to hire somebody who was trustworthy. She heard about Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, so she hired him, and she had her servant accompany Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Her servant's name is Maysara. Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam went to Asham, uh, did business for her, came back. Maysara reported back to his master. Maysara went to Khadija and told her, "This man is his trustworthiness and his honesty is amazing. It's outstanding." And he was praising Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Well, Khadija became very interested in Muhammad sallallahu I mean, his character was uh, admirable. Khadija, radiallahu anha, who was a wealthy woman, who was sought after by the noblemen of Quraysh, she said, I want to marry you. And Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa agreed. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa was 25 and she was 40. The difference was 15 years. She was his senior. And Rasulullah never married anyone else before Khadija anha passed away. All of the children of Rasulullah were the surviving children of Rasulullah were from Khadija. Fatima was the daughter of Khadija anha. She bore six children for him. Zainab, Ruqayyah, Umm Kalthum, Fatima, Al-Qasim and Abdullah. And none of them ended up having descendants except Fatima radiallahu anha. And that is where the lineage of Rasulullah is continuing through the descendants of Fatima and Ali. Rasulullah loved her so much. And Rasulullah kept his loyalty to Khadija even after she passed away. He would always remember her, always mention her name. And that sometimes uh, would cause jealousy among the other wives of Rasulullah uh, But Rasulullah had so much love and admiration to Khadija and so much respect for her. Uh, because Khadija is the one who stood up for him and supported him when everybody else betrayed Muhammad Aisha radiallahu anha was the most beloved to Rasulullah after that. She would sometimes feel this jealousy. In, in Bukhari, in Muslim, it says that Aisha said, I did not become jealous of any of the wives of the Prophet ﷺ except Khadija. And I have not seen her. The Messenger of Allah used to at times slaughter a sheep and say, send it to the friends of Khadija. 
So not only did Rasulullah always remember her, he kept on maintaining a relationship with the friends of Khadija. And one day I angered him when he said that by replying out of jealousy Khadija. So he وسلم, said, I have been given by Allah her love. Once he mentioned the name of Khadija, so Aisha was upset. Rasulullah responded and said, this is something from Allah. I was given her love. It's not something that I control. Allah has put her love in my heart. In another hadith narrated by Ahmad and Tirmidhi, Aisha radiallahu anha said, the messenger of Allah used to many times not leave his home without praising Khadija. I mean, this is amazing. How much love Rasulullah had for her. One of the days he praised her and out of jealousy I said, was she not but an elder woman that Allah has replaced her for you with what is better? He became angered and said, no, by Allah he did not replace me with anyone better. For she had faith in me when the people rejected. She believed me when the people belied me. She made comfortable with what she had when the people denied me. And Allah has blessed me with children from her. So Rasulullah would become angry when he would hear anything against Khadija radiallahu anha. And this shows us an aspect of the personality of Rasulullah His loyalty to the people who were close to him. This is years after Khadija passed away. I mean, opportunist people, they take advantage of a person and whenever that person is gone, that's the end of the relationship. Rasulullah would always remember his old friends or relatives. Hamza ibn Abdul Muttalib, Khadija radiallahu anha, Mus'ab ibn Umayr. These Sahaba, in fact, subhanAllah, one amazing thing that brings a person to tears. Uh, before Rasulullah passed away, one of the last things he did was go and visit the cemetery of his friends who died in the Battle of Uhud. The 17 companions who died in the Battle of Uhud. When Rasulullah felt that he will be leaving dunya soon, he went to the cemetery and made dua for them. And he was saying in that dua that soon we will meet. Rasulullah was missing them so much. And was asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, to bring him uh, with them and to join them together in Jannah. So Rasulullah had this strong relationship with his sahaba and loyalty. And he never forgot his wife Khadija who stood with him in moments of difficulty. He never forgot that. And he would continuously make dua for her and mention her name. And Khadija was a special person. Khadija radiallahu anha, when she was living, Jibreel descended on Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa and said, Khadija is going to approach you now and she's carrying for you some food. When she arrives, tell her that Allah is giving her salam. And tell her that I am giving her salam. That is how special Khadija was. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends down Jibreel السلام, to tell Khadija that I'm giving salam to you. And Jibreel is then adding his own salam to the statement and telling Muhammad sallallahu and tell her that Jibreel is giving her his salam. And then Jibreel السلام, said, and give her the glad tidings of a palace in paradise. So she was granted a place in Jannah. Khadija 
is one of the four greatest women that ever lived. Rasulullah says that the greatest women that ever set foot on the face of the earth are four. Maryam bint Imran, Khadija bint Khuwailid, Fatima bint Muhammad, and Asiya bint Muzahim. These are the greatest women. The greatest among them is Maryam, alayhi salam, by the verse in Quran. وَإِذْ قَالَتِ الْمَلَائِكَةُ يَا مَرْيَمُ إِنَّ اللَّهَ اصْطَفَاكِ وَطَهَّرَكِ وَاصْطَفَاكِ عَلَى نِسَاءِ الْعَالَمِينَ O Maryam, Allah has chosen you above all of the women of the world by the statement of Quran. Second is Khadija. She's number two. So the second greatest woman. Number three, Fatima bint Muhammad. And number four, Asya bint Muzahim. And all of these four women had something to do with the Nabi. Two of them were mothers of Anbiya, or actually uh, ones who brought up Anbiya. Maryam salam brought up Isa. She was his mother. And Asya, she brought up Musa. And then Khadija was a wife of a Nabi, and Fatima was the daughter of a Nabi. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Number one reached the age of 25 and he was in his seerah Rasulullah was known as being chased in an environment that is corrupt and the reason why I'm bringing this up is because some of the orientalists the ones who are professional enemies of Islam he used that as a their animosity towards Islam, it is their, their role in life. They try to attack the person of Rasulullah and one of the areas that they attack is his marriage life. They talk a lot about his marriage to Aisha, they talk about the fact that he married 12 women, and they try to accuse Muhammad of being a womanizer. So let's look at the Marriage life of Rasulullah let's, let's study it. Number one, Rasulullah reaches to the age of 25 in an environment where zina, adultery and fornication was widespread. And you might have read the hadith of Aisha which was in Bukhari where she talks about the four different relationships that existed between men and women. One of them was a traditional marriage. The other one was brothels that were legal in Mecca and they would have flags on top of them as signs for anybody who's interested in this corrupt behavior and then they had this uh, other type of relationship where a woman would sleep with a group of men that could go up to ten and then if she becomes pregnant and she delivers then she can call these men in and say that she could just pick anyone out of them and say that you are the father of the child they had this strange relationship where a man would allow his wife to sleep with a noble man in order to have some noble lineage. So it was quite a corrupt environment. A young man would party and sleep with women that they have no legal relationship with. Rasulullah lives up until the age of 25 and he was able to fight the tide and stay away from all of this corruption. All the way until he reached the age of 25. So that's number one. 
Number two, at the age of 25, he chooses to marry a woman who is 15 years older than himself. And she is a widow or divorced. Now, Rasulullah being from the noble family of Banu Hashim, he could have chosen for himself any woman he wanted in Mecca. And if he was interested in these desires, he would have chosen for himself a young woman to marry, rather than marrying a lady who is 15 years older than him. She was 40 years old when Rasulullah married her. Number three. Rasulullah remains with Aisha until he reaches the age of 50. And we know that the age in which men would have strong desires towards women would be from young age to around the age of 50. I mean, that's the young age of a man when the desires would be the strongest. So for Rasulullah to remain married to Khadija in a very happy marriage, and it is not reported at all that Rasulullah had any intentions of marrying anybody else. He didn't even contemplate the idea. There are no reports of that. So for Rasulullah to continue with Khadija radiallahu anha from the age of 25 to the age of 50 is a clear indication that Rasulullah had none of those thoughts in his mind. And I think this completely destroys that argument. Khadija radiallahu anha passes away. Rasulullah remains as a bachelor for about two to three years. Later on, he marries another widow, a Sayyida Sauda, radiallahu anha. The reasons for him marrying Sauda are because Sauda, radiallahu anha, was in Abyssinia. She came back to Mecca and her husband passed away. So Rasulullah, out of his care for his companions, he married her. Husband died, she doesn't have anyone to provide for her. Rasulullah marries her and she was quite old in age. Because later on in Medina we know that Sauda ended up giving up her night to Aisha radiallahu anha because she was very old at age. Suddenly within the last 10 years of Rasulullah Rasulullah married many women to the extent that when he died he left behind nine widows. So how come this change? From the age of 25 to 50, he only married Khadija, radiallahu anha, but then, within the last 10 years of his life, or the last, it's 10 years, because for two or three years he was unmarried. For the last 10 years of his life, he marries and he leaves behind nine widows. What is the reason? Number one, forging alliances with different tribes. When we study the marriage life of Rasulullah we need to look at the life of Rasulullah comprehensively. The Messenger of Allah, Muhammad devoted all of his efforts, underline all, all of his efforts for the promotion of Islam. Everything that he would do, even his decision in marriage, would be based on the benefit of Islam. Whatever Rasulullah did in his life, the intention of it was to promote the religion of Allah. He wouldn't do anything purely to satisfy his human desires. He would do it to please Allah Azza wa Therefore, we need to look at his marriage life in this light. He married a few of his wives to forge alliances with different tribes, to bring them closer to Islam, like his marriage of Juwayriya, uh, which ended up making the whole tribe of Banu Mustalaq become Muslim. 
number two, caring for his companions, his followers, like the example we gave of Sauda radiallahu anha. Number three, Rasulullah sallallahu wanted to strengthen his ties with his closest companions. Rasulullah sallallahu had a strong brotherly feeling towards his companions. And there was a special group among them whom Rasulullah wanted to have a stronger relationship. And that is not only an Islamic brotherhood, but to add to its family ties. And for someone who did not experience Islamic brotherhood, it's difficult for them to appreciate this. What if you have lived like Rasulullah with his companions for 23 years? What bond would develop between them? They were, subhanAllah, together in moments of ease and moments of difficulty. On the battlefield and in times of peace. They would eat together, they would travel together. They, the relationship that Rasulullah had with the Sahaba was so strong. When we get into the Medina era and we talk about the time which, when Rasulullah passed away and the feelings that were in Medina, the feelings of loss, that the people of Medina had, it is something that we cannot even describe. So Rasulullah wanted to strengthen the relationship between him and his close companions. So Rasulullah married the daughter of Abu Bakr, and he married the daughter of Amr bin Khattab, and he married his daughter to Uthman bin Affan. And when this daughter of Rasulullah passed away, he married Uthman, another of his daughters. And then she passed away. Rasulullah said, if I had 99 daughters, I would marry them to Uthman ibn Affan one after another. Rasulullah wanted to have this relationship between him and Uthman ibn Affan. And he married his most beloved daughter Fatima anha to Ali ibn Abi Talib. So now he had a family relationship between him and the four Khalifa. Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman and Ali. Number four, and this is very important, conveying the religion. We are to follow the sunnah of Rasulullah He had the sunnah as a statesman, a sunnah as a teacher, a sunnah as an imam, a sunnah as a military leader. And he had the sunnah as a family man. Now we have hundreds of companions to convey to us his sunnah as a statement. We have hundreds of companions to tell us how he acted as a military leader. We have hundreds of companions to tell us how he was as a teacher and as an imam. How many do we have to tell us about his family life? How many? Rasulullah did not have a lot of children that survived him, only Fatima radiallahu anha. So who would convey to us his family life? It is his wives. Now if Rasulullah only had one wife, first of all, it will be difficult on this one wife to recall every aspect of the family life of Rasulullah Number two, she could easily be discredited because you only have one source. And we know that Abu Huraira, we know the vicious attack that is being directed at Abu Hurairah because the enemies of Islam know that if they can discredit Abu Hurairah they can completely destroy over 5,000 of the saints of Rasulullah by discrediting one man they could undermine 5,000 of the ahadith of Rasulullah 
And we already know that that has happened for a fact. There is an attack on Abu Hurairah And the family life of Rasulullah is one of the most important aspects of the Sunnah because it relates to every one of us. Not every one of us will be an Imam. Not everyone will be a military leader. Not everyone will be a statesman. Not everyone will be a teacher. But almost everyone in the Ummah will be a member of a family. So how will they learn on how to conduct their lives as members of a family without receiving information about how Rasulullah was a family man? Therefore, Rasulullah had multiple wives so that they would convey to us this body of knowledge of how Rasulullah acted in his private life. Many of the Sunan relating to how Rasulullah treated his wives, how he treated his servants, how he ate, how he dressed, how he would spend his time at home, his ibadah at night. That was all conveyed to us by the wives of Rasulullah So it's not only limited to the section of family sunnah, but it also relates to the ibadah, how Rasulullah would spend his night. How do we know that? It was through the wives of Rasulullah So having multiple wives, first of all, they compensate each other. So if one of them forgets, the other would remember. Number two, you have more than one chain of narration. It's coming through multiple sources rather than one. And number three, it becomes impossible to discredit. Because now you have more than one person involved. And that is an extremely important thing for us. And remember, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has sent Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam as a living embodiment of Qur'an. And therefore Allah granted that his sunnah will reach to us. Because it's part of the promise of Allah to protect Qur'an. The protection of Qur'an is not only that the words of Qur'an will be protected, but also part of its interpretation by Rasulullah would survive. And that was done through the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, and most importantly through the wives of Rasulullah sallallahu So for us, it was very critical for the ummah that Rasulullah had multiple wives. And that's why he was excluded from the ruling of having four or less. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has allowed him to have more. Because of the special circumstances of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. This was done and destined by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as a protection of his religion. Now the two most controversial marriages of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam are the, his marriage to Aisha and his marriage to Zainab bin Jahsh. These are the most targeted marriages of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa We don't have a lot of complaint about his marriage to Umm Salama or Umm Habib or Sauda. But there is a lot of attack directed at his marriage to Aisha radiallahu anha and Zainab bin Jahsh. Aisha radiallahu anha because Rasulullah sallallahu married her at the age of six. And the marriage was consummated at the age of nine. And the attack against Zainab bin Jahsh is because he was married to his adopted son and then Rasulullah sallallahu married her later on. So these are the two marriages where you have a lot of controversy. So let's look at these two particular cases. Subhanallah, it so happens that the two particular marriages that are targeted are the only two marriages of Rasulullah that were divinely instructed. None of the other marriages of Rasulullah were instructed by Allah except these two. His marriage to Zainab was instructed in Quran in Surah Al-Ahzab. 
When Zayd left her, we commanded you to marry her. So it's in Quran. And the marriage of Rasulullah to Aisha was divinely inspired through the dream which Rasulullah saw. And this dream is mentioned in Bukhari. Rasulullah says, Jibreel came to me. And I saw you, Aisha, covered uh, behind a silk curtain. Or you were wearing a silk dress. And when I would uncover you, this is in the dream, before Rasulullah marries her. When I uncovered you, I saw you, and Jibreel told me, this is your wife. So Rasulullah saw a woman. And when he uh, took a look at her, it was Aisha. And then Jibreel told him, this is your wife in dunya and in akhirah. And Rasulullah saw this dream twice. And we know that the dreams of the Anbiya are revelation. Ru'ya al-Anbiya wahi. Rasulullah says that the dreams of Anbiya are revelation. So, the marriage of Rasulullah to Aisha is instructed by Allah. And the marriage of Rasulullah to Zainab was instructed by Allah. So you have two types of people who would attack this. One type would be Muslims who have weak faith, and they wonder how Rasulullah would do something like this. The response to them would be, it wasn't Rasulullah who did it. He was commanded by Allah to do it. So as a Muslim, do you believe in the command of Allah or not? It was an exceptional situation that is not allowed for you. That's why it's not part of the sunnah of Rasulullah We cannot marry more than four. That's not part of the sunnah that we follow. And also, the, his situation with Aisha radiallahu anha is also not something that is allowed for us. It was an exception that was allowed for Rasulullah for particular reasons which I will talk about. But for a Muslim, this would be the response. That these were divinely commanded by Allah Azza wa Jal, therefore we, we have no right to question them. It wasn't something that was initiated by Muhammad wasallam. It was done by Allah. Now for the ones who are not Muslim and are attacking Rasulullah and saying that this is an act of, you know, all of the horrible accusations that are directed at Rasulullah the response will be that your problem is not really Rasulullah marrying to Aisha. Your problem is that you don't believe he's the messenger of Allah. You don't believe that he's receiving revelation. So, your problem runs deeper. The issue of bringing up Aisha is just a front in order to attack Islam. Even if Rasulullah didn't do it, you would still be attacking. You can still say that this was divinely instructed. The response will be, well, how convenient it is. Whenever there is something that seems strange, you say that God commanded it. That could be a response. I mean, 
they would say, well, these particular two marriages that we are attacking, you say that God is the one who instructed them. The response will be that we need to then discuss the issue of whether Rasulullah was a prophet of Allah or not. And that would settle the argument. If he's the prophet of Allah, then we have no right to question what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told him to do. I mean, if, if we establish that he was a messenger of Allah, receiving revelation from Allah, then whatever Allah tells him to do, we should accept it. I mean, if Allah tells one of us to stand against the wall with one feet up in the air, uh, until we die, we have no right to question that. I mean, it's God who's instructing us to do it. Who am I to go against what my Creator wants me to do? Allah owes nothing to us and we owe everything to Him. Therefore, if something is instructed by Allah, I don't have to understand why it is that I'm instructed to do this. I just have to do it. So I hope that we get the point here that the enemies of Islam are attacking the marriage of Rasulullah to Aisha. Even if that didn't happen, the attack would still continue because their problem is that they don't believe in Islam. They don't believe that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. They don't believe that he was receiving revelations from Allah. So it's pointless to argue on the point of Aisha because there's a major problem. And that is they don't accept him altogether. And that would take us back to the accusations of the people of Quraysh that were thrown at Muhammad Allah Azza wa Jal revealed قَدْ نَعْلَمُ إِنَّهُ لَيَحْزُنُكَ الَّذِي يَقُولُونَ فَإِنَّهُمْ لَا يُكَذِّبُونَكَ وَلَكِنَّ الظَّالِمِينَ بِآيَاتِ اللَّهِ يَجْحَدُونَ They are not disbelieving you. They are disbelieving in the message of Allah. They are attacking you because you are the messenger. They are not attacking your personality just because of your personality. They are attacking you because you are conveying the message of Allah to them. So these attacks that are hurdled at Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam are because he is the messenger of Allah. Now, the marriage of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam to Aisha, how come it was so important? Let me make this statement first. One of the greatest blessings of Allah on us as Muslims. Again, one of the greatest blessings of Allah on us as Muslims is that Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi married Aisha. This particular marriage that some people have doubts in their heart due to the fact that Rasulullah marries a girl who is six years old. They do not realize that it would have been a disaster on the Ummah if Rasulullah did not marry Aisha. It is one of the best things that happened to us. Aisha radiallahu anha had a mind of a scholar. She had very bright mind, very intelligent, and she had an inquisitive nature. Aisha radiallahu anha describes herself and says, the companions of Rasulullah used to hear the hadith of Rasulullah and they would immediately follow it. While I would ask Rasulullah questions about it. Aisha radiallahu anha, being the wife of Rasulullah and being the most beloved of his wives, had this informal relationship with Rasulullah so she could afford to question him and ask him. While the others were very respectful of Rasulullah and they wouldn't dare do that. So it needed somebody who had this intimate relationship with Rasulullah to be able to ask questions and to inquire about the certain statements of Rasulullah. I mean, remember we talked about Amr ibn and we said how much he loved Rasulullah and when he was dying he said, 
if you would ask me to describe the, to you Rasulullah I wouldn't be able to do so. Because I had so much love and admiration and respect for him. I lived with him for years and I couldn't even look him straight in the eye. Because of the deep respect that I had for Rasulullah But Aisha radiallahu anha, being very young and playful at that age, and having a very close relationship with Rasulullah Rasulullah could say something and she would ask and she would argue with Rasulullah No one else could afford to do that. So we learned so much because of that. Plus, Aisha radiallahu anha had the mind of a scholar. And she became one of the greatest scholars of Islam. Among the top seven narrators of hadith, Aisha comes number four. Aisha is one of the top seven narrators of the hadith of Rasulullah Number one is Abu Huraira, 5,000 plus. Number two, Abdullah ibn Umar, 2,600. Uh, number three, Anas ibn Malik. Number four, Aisha radiallahu anha, 2,200. So really the differences between rank 4, 3, and 2 is not much. Abu Huraira is the one who is outstanding. He's almost double the second place. Open any book of fiqh. It's impossible to study a book of fiqh without going through the name of Aisha, her narrations, and her opinions in fiqh. In every fiqh, Hanafi, Shafi'i, Hanbali, Maliki, Aisha, radiallahu anha, her knowledge is there. So we have learned so much from Aisha radiallahu anha. It was the destiny of Allah that Rasulullah would marry Aisha radiallahu anha. And it was just as it was a, a divine inspiration to Rasulullah and maybe he didn't think about it before, it was a surprise to Abu Bakr. When Rasulullah went and proposed to Abu Bakr that he wants to marry his daughter, Abu Bakr Siddiq was surprised. He said, I am your brother. Meaning we're very close in age. I am your brother. Rasulullah said, you are my brother. And your daughter is appropriate for me. This was a command from Allah Azza wa And subhanallah, it was a blessing from Allah Azza wa on this ummah. Sometimes something would appear to be in a certain way. However, if we would just dig a little bit deeper, we'd see something completely different. You might dislike something, but there's a lot of good for you in it. So we should be very proud and happy that Rasulullah married Aisha radiallahu anha and we should be thankful to Allah that that happened. Rather than having these doubts in our hearts and having this fear and inhibition. It is a blessing of Allah Azza wa on us. Just a final comment. Rasulullah did not marry any virgin woman except Aisha radiallahu anha. And Rasulullah never married any woman who was young except Aisha radiallahu anha. It was an exceptional case. If we want to study the marriage life of Rasulullah that was initiated by him, we need to look at every wife except Aisha and Zainab. And you'll know who are the women Rasulullah was marrying. Sauda. Forgot to mention Umm Habiba. Umm Habiba radiallahu anha. She's the one who migrated to Abyssinia. And her husband, Ubaidullah bin Jahsh, converted to Christianity. And she went through a miserable time, very difficult moments on Umm Habiba, being the daughter of Abu Sufyan, the head of Quraysh. So, later on, her husband passed away. 
Rasulullah sent a message letter with Amr bin Umayyah al-Dumri to an Najashi asking an Najashi to marry him to Umm Habiba radiallahu anha because Rasulullah had sympathy for what Umm Habiba went through Rasulullah wanted to marry her even though she was hundreds of miles away the scholars say that was the furthest marriage of Rasulullah she was in Abyssinia and he was in Medina it was symbolic to, uh, first of all, take care of Umm Habiba. Also, Umm Habiba was the daughter of Abu Sufyan. So Rasulullah wanted to bring the staunchest enemies of Islam closer. He wants to soften their stance. And when Abu Sufyan heard of the news that Rasulullah married his daughter, even though Abu Sufyan was now the leader of Quraysh, he was their leader in fighting Islam, Abu Sufyan was happy that this marriage took place. He said, and who is better to marry than Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa I mean, Abu Sufyan knows the lineage of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa so that's how he looks at it. This is the, from Banu Hashim. It's, it's an honor for us to marry our daughter to somebody from Banu Hashim. Our issue with him is because of religion. So he was proud and happy that his daughter got married to Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa So that softened Abu Sufyan a little bit. It brought him closer to Islam. And Rasulullah also intended uh, in taking care of Umm Habiba radiallahu anhu in that uh, difficult moment that she was going through. Another marriage would be Umm Salama. Umm Salama radiallahu anha also was one of the ones who made hijrah to Abyssinia. Then they came back and uh, they went to Medina. Later on, Abu Salama passed away. Rasulullah married Umm Salama. So he would take care of the wives of his companions who died. And these are older women. But Rasulullah is the father of this Ummah. Just like his wives are called Mothers of the Ummah. What's the name given to the wives of Rasulullah Ummahat al-Mu'mineen. The mothers of the believers. So Rasulullah viewed himself as a caretaker of this Ummah. Even if he doesn't have a direct blood relationship with the members of this Ummah, he still felt that he's their father. So he would take care of their needy. He would take care of the hungry. And that is the statement that, in the conversation that happened between Asma bin Umayyah and Umar bin Khattab, when Amr al-Khattab said, we have more rights to Rasulullah than you. Because we made hijrah before you. Asma bin Tamesh, just arrived from Abyssinia. Asma bin Tamesh responded by saying, no, that's not true. You were with Rasulullah He was feeding the hungry among you. And was teaching the ignorant among you. So Rasulullah was the father of this ummah. And that is how his marriage life even is a reflection of that. An important event occurred during the prophethood of Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. A flood has affected the structure of Al-Kaaba. Al-Kaaba is located in a low valley between mountains, and Mecca was once flooded, and the flood has caused cracks in the walls of Al-Kaaba. So the people of Quraysh uh, felt the need to rebuild Al-Kaaba again. Now Al-Kaaba in total has been built and rebuilt five or four times, depending on who was the first to build it. There's a difference of opinion on whether Ibrahim was the first to build Al-Kaaba. Some scholars refer to our father Adam as the first one 
to build Al-Kaaba. However, the majority opinion is that it was Ibrahim السلام, who first built it. Now the ones who say that Adam السلام, is the one who built it, they say we're not contradicting Quran because Quran says وَإِذْ يَرْفَعُ إِبْرَاهِيمُ الْقَوَاعِدَ مِنَ الْبَيْتِ وَإِسْمَاعِيلُ رَبَّنَا تَقَبَّلْ مِنَّا إِنَّكَ أَنْتَ السَّمِيعُ الْعَلِيمُ They say that Quran states that Ibrahim was raising the foundations of the house, meaning there was already something there for him to raise above it. So they say that the house, the foundations of it were established in the time of Adam salam. But the common belief among our scholars is that it was Ibrahim salam who first built it. However, there is no dispute in the holiness of the place. Since the earth was created, I mean all of our scholars say even if it wasn't Adam who first built it, the place was sacred, was holy and was visited by the prophets of Allah. So they say it used to be like a small hill which was destined as a sacred and holy place. And the Anbiya of Allah would visit it. And we have references of quite a few Anbiya visiting the house of Allah. There is a hadith that states that Hud visited Al-Kaaba. There is a hadith that states that Salih visited uh, Nuh. And there is a saying attributed to Rasulullah that Isa السلام, when he comes down again, when he descends to earth in his second coming, he will make Hajj. So it's either Adam or Ibrahim السلام, who first built Al-Kaaba. But we all know that it was the first house built for the remembrance of Allah. إِنَّ أَوَّلَ بَيْتٍ وُضِعَ لِلنَّاسِ لَلَّذِي بِبَكَّةَ مُبَارَكًا وَهُدًا لِلْعَالَمِينَ The first house established for my worship was the one in Bakka. Bakka is also another name for Mecca. So you have Adam and Ibrahim. Let's start counting from Ibrahim a.s. So Ibrahim a.s. is the first. Second time was... This time we're talking about now, uh, when Mecca was flooded. Now the people of Quraysh wanted to rebuild it. They gathered together and they had to tear it down. But none of them agreed to make that move. So they were all waiting, ready with their equipment around the Kaaba, but no one wants to go ahead and start bringing it down. That is how much honor and respect they had for Al-Kaaba in their hearts, even though at the time they were mushrikeen. But they feared Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and uh, they thought that uh, it's a dangerous thing to uh, tear down the walls of Al-Kaaba. And then one of them said, I will be the first to do it. And he gathered all of his sons and they came early in the morning and they started bringing the rocks of Al-Kaaba down and they were saying Oh Allah, don't be afraid, all what you want is good. Oh Allah, don't be afraid, all what you want is good. So you can see there also their false understanding of the divinity of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I mean, they were trying to 
calm God by telling him, don't be afraid, all what he wants is good. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows what's in your hearts. You don't have to tell him that. So, even though they believed in Allah, but they, the, in terms of the attributes of Allah, al-asma'u-sifat, they had some problems with that. So they brought down the walls of Al-Kaaba. Now it happened that there was a Roman ship that crashed on a port on the Red Sea close to Mecca. So they brought some of the wood on that ship. And there was a, a Roman builder who was on that ship, so they also had him help with the wood. So this was the first time they made the roof of Al-Kaaba, the ceiling of Al-Kaaba from wood. They used some of the wood from this ship. Now the people of Quraysh, they knew that money from interest was no good. And they made a decision that they're only going to use halal money in the rebuilding of Al-Kaaba. They're not going to use money from interest or money from prostitution. Because at the time, to show their corruptness, and by the way, there's a hadith that uh, is narrated by Bukhari, Aisha radiallahu anha, talks about the types of, of marriages that existed in Arabia. It's on page 11. You can refer to it later on. But the prostitution was something that existed. And you'd have men hiring their slave girls as an income generating source for them. But they knew that this was not good. They would do it, they would deal with interest, uh, but they knew that this was not good. So they decided that they're not going to use this money in the rebuilding of Al-Kaaba. Since they ran short of funds, they ended up shortening the... You know, Al-Kaaba originally was a, a bit of a rectangle rather than a square. It was rectangular in shape. Because the people of Quraysh ran short of funds, they ended up shortening Al-Kaaba from one side. So they made it a square rather than a rectangle to save money. The area of Al-Kaaba which they left out was what we refer today as Al-Hajr. The enclosed area in that semi-circle. If you ever visited Al-Kaaba, you would see that on one side of Al-Kaaba, there's a semi-circle. That used to be part of the original building of Al-Kaaba. And Al-Kaaba also had two gates. They made it one, and they raised the doorstep. So now, in order to get access to the door, you have to climb. The gate was made very high. Rasulullah says in this hadith, Don't you know, Rasulullah is talking to Aisha, Don't you know that your people had insufficient funds for the expenses? If it were not for the fact that your people were only recently unbelievers, I would have torn down the Kaaba and made for it one door on the east and another on the west, and I would have included the Hajr area within it. When Rasulullah opened Mecca, he was thinking about reconstructing Kaaba on the original foundations. But then he told Aisha, the reason I'm not going to do this it's because your people just became Muslim. Their Islam is soft. Their Iman is weak. And it might be a fitna for them. It might cause them a problem if I reconstruct Al-Kaaba. So he didn't do it. 
There's an important lesson to learn from this hadith, and that is that the da'iyah needs to take the condition of the people into consideration. Even though Rasulullah wanted to do this, but he didn't, because he was worried that it might affect the iman of the people. So as a person who is calling to Islam, you need to take into consideration the condition of the people that you're directing the message to. Abdullah bin Mas'ud says that if you tell the people something that is beyond their comprehension or understanding or iman, it might be a trial for some of them. It might cause a backlash with some people. Sometimes we throw out information on a particular subject, which is absolutely true and valid, but because the people are not ready for it yet, because their iman is weak, it causes a backlash with them. Some things people just are unable to grasp. Now, Rasulullah said that your people, Quraysh, the reason why they made the door of Al-Kaaba high is because they wanted to have control on who would go in and out. It was an issue of power. They didn't want to make the door low so that it would be accessible to anyone. They made it high so that they could control who would go in and out. It's a matter of influence, having authority. So the door of the Kaaba was raised. And Rasulullah said, if I would rebuild it, I would lower the gate and I would make for it two gates so that people could come from one side and leave from the other, rather than having to come in and out from the same door. Rasulullah participated in the rebuilding of Al-Kaaba, and at the time he was maybe around 35 years old. That's a rough estimate. So now the people of Quraysh are building Al-Kaaba. They reached to the holiest part of Al-Kaaba, which is the Black Stone. And now a dispute erupts among them. Who will have the honor to place the black stone in its spot? Because when they were rebuilding Al-Kaaba, every tribe took responsibility of building one side of it. They all want to participate in this honor. But with the black stone, they disputed. Every tribe wanted to have the honor of putting it in its place. Banu Abdul-Dar, they gathered all of their men and they came in front of the Kaaba with a pot of blood and they placed it in front of everyone and they all stuck their hands in the blood and pulled it out. In other words, they're telling everyone that this is what will happen if we don't place the black stone in its place. So it's like pledging to die and to fight. We will do it, otherwise this is what will happen. Blood will flow. Even though that was a drastic measure and quite a threat, but that wasn't enough to deter others. Another tribe, they went and brought in their own pot of blood. And they started sticking their hands in and pulling them out. And then everybody was bringing their own pot of blood and it was four or five days they couldn't solve the problem and war was about to erupt between them. And then the eldest man among them, Umayyah, he had a suggestion. He came and said, let's agree that the first man to walk in towards Al-Kaaba will be given complete authority in judging between us. So they all gathered next to Al-Kaaba and they were waiting for the first person to come. 
And the first person to walk in was Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. They all stood up and said, As-Sadiqul Ameen, Radina, Radina. The truthful and the trustworthy, we all agree. Now they have already agreed that they will give a complete authority to the person who would come in. But they were so happy that this person was Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam because they knew that he will not be biased in his ruling. You know, it would be expected that if someone came from a particular family, he would give authority to his family to place it in its place. I mean, and, and that was the expected thing, that we're going to leave it randomly for the first one to come in and his family would take it. But when they saw that it was Muhammad wasallam, they were so happy because they know his fairness. So they told him, we give you complete authority in solving this dispute. Rasulullah asked them to bring a robe, a piece of cloth. He picked up the black stone and he placed it on this cloth. And then he asked a representative from each clan to hold the cloth from one side. And then they all raised it up together in the same time. Therefore, every one of them will participate in lifting the black stone. And when they all lifted it up, then he, with his blessed hands, picked up the black stone and placed it in its place. So it was Rasulullah who put the black stone in its spot. So that's the uh, second time Al-Kaaba was rebuilt. Rasulullah opened Mecca and then he said that if it wasn't for the fact that the people are new Muslims, I would have rebuilt it on the foundations of Ibrahim. Years later, Abdullah bin Zubair became the Amir of Mecca. He knew of this hadith because Aisha was his aunt. Abdullah bin Zubair, his mother is Asma bint Abi Bakr, the sister of Aisha. So Aisha was his aunt. And he was familiar with this hadith. So he decided to rebuild Al-Kaaba on the original foundations because now the people have been Muslim for a long time. They are not new Muslims anymore. They will be able to handle the situation. He decided that he's going to rebuild Al-Kaaba. Especially that Al-Kaaba was burnt because Al-Hajjaj bin Yusuf al-Thaqafi has laid siege on Mecca. At that time there was a war between Abdullah bin Zubair and Bani Umayyah in Syria. And the army general of Bani Umayyah has laid siege to Mecca. And one of the catapults has hit Al-Kaaba and it caused some damage and it burned. Now that damage could have been fixed without tearing down Al-Kaaba. But Abdullah bin Zubair wanted to take advantage and rebuild Al-Kaaba on the original foundations, which he did. And he fulfilled the description that was given by Rasulullah in the hadith. That he would lower the gate and have an east door and a western door and expand the size of Al-Kaaba towards Al-Hijr. Which he did. So that's the third time Al-Kaaba was rebuilt. Abdullah bin Zubair ended up losing the war and he was killed. Al-Hajjaj ibn Yusuf took over. The Khalifa of that time, Abdul Malik ibn Marwan, was not familiar with this hadith. So he gave his commands to take back Al-Kaaba to the way it was before Abdullah bin Zubair. So Al-Kaaba was shortened again. 
according to the way the people of Quraysh built it. After the Khilafah of Bani Umayyah, Banu al-Abbas were the family of Khulafa. One of the Khulafa of Bani Abbas was thinking about rebuilding Al-Kaaba again on the original foundations. And he consulted Al-Imam Malik. Imam Malik told the Khalifa, and he gave him, gave him a very wise answer. He said, we don't want Al-Kaaba to be a toy in the hands of kings. They keep changing its size every now and then. Even though the plan of Rasulullah and his desire was to build it on the foundations of Ibrahim, but let's keep it the way it is and not change it anymore. Because it was going back and forth on the foundations of Ibrahim and then the way Quraysh built it and then the, again on the foundations of Ibrahim, Imam Malik said that the people have known Al-Kaaba and they have known these stones the way they are. Don't keep on changing it. Keep it the way it is. And that was a very wise advice from Al-Imam Malik which the Khalifa followed. So. The Kaaba that we have today is built on which foundation? The foundation of Ibrahim or the foundations of Quraysh? Quraysh. But alhamdulillah that's something good. Why? If Al-Kaaba was built on the original foundations of Ibrahim, we would have been deprived the chance of praying inside Al-Kaaba. But since it is shortened, that area which is enclosed by the semicircle is actually part of Al-Kaaba. So when you pray in that area, it is as if you have prayed inside Al-Kaaba. And we know that Rasulullah did pray inside Al-Kaaba. When he opened Mecca, he prayed inside Al-Kaaba. He prayed eight rak'ah inside Al-Kaaba. So now we have a chance to pray in Al-Hijr. Otherwise, you would have to get permission to get inside the Kaaba, and it would be very cumbersome and difficult. But now, you can pray inside the Hajj, and it will count as if you prayed in al Kaaba. Now, over the time, the height of the Kaaba has increased, but the size of it has remained constant. Now, with the stones that al Kaaba are built from, many of them are remnants of the original stones that were used by Ibrahim But not all of them. Some other ones were introduced later by Quraysh and others. But the black stone is the original stone that was used by Ibrahim The black stone has never changed. It is the original stone that was given to Ibrahim And there are many stories about the black stone itself. Some say it originated from Jannah. Uh, there is a hadith that is authentic that says that the black stone was white, but then it turned black because of the sins of the sons of Adam. And there is a hadith that says that the black stone is the right hand of Allah on earth. Uh, so the black stone is very special. Uh, it's very honored. And it's, it's very respected. And it's the only part of a Kaaba that is uh, kissed and uh, is the only part of a Kaaba that is pointed to from distance. Some people, they point to the Yemeni corner, which is wrong. The Yemeni corner, you can touch it when you're passing by it, but one should not point towards it or greet it from a distance. That is only for the black stone. So this is the history of Al-Kaaba. The Prophet ﷺ would leave Mecca 
and spend times he would go out of Mecca and spend time in the cave of Hira in uh, a mountain that is uh, fairly close to Mecca a few kilometers away from Mecca Rasulullah would take with him provisions some food and he would go and stay in seclusion solitude in this cave worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and from the cave it is said that you are able to see Al-Kaaba in those old days so Rasulullah would spend days and nights continuously in the cave worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala before prophethood so he knew Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and he was worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in that cave and this was a chance for Rasulullah to do reflection and contemplation in the creation of Allah and this was training for him Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was training him through these moments of reflection and contemplation because they purify the heart and uh, Sa'id Hawa he comments on this he says uh, solitude was the tradition of some who seek the guidance of Allah with the remembrance of Allah and worship it was used to illuminate the hearts and remove its shadows by disconnecting it from its heedlessness and desires. Some would advise this in the beginning of the journey to belief, as this was the example of the Prophet ﷺ when he spent time in solitude before and at the beginning of his apostleship. So as a Muslim, you are recommended to spend time alone in dhikr. For example, early in the morning, after Asr, between Asr and Maghrib and Friday, so you spend time alone remembering Allah in solitude. And our scholars talked about the benefit of solitude. Now one should not go into the extremes of leaving the society completely or immersing oneself in the society completely. You should have a middle road. So you spend some time with people socializing, but you also spend time alone between you and Allah. Qiyamul layl is a chance for solitude praying at night alone when everybody is asleep so it is something between you and Allah there is an element of sincerity there that might not exist with other ibadat that are done collectively so now you are doing this alone nobody can see you you are not showing off who are you doing it for? you are doing it for Allah so it is very important for one to spend this time in solitude to purify the heart because the Scholars say that too much socialization, too much laughing, too much attachment to dunya obscures the heart and throws veils on it. And the way to purify the heart is by spending some time uh, worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in solitude. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says about tafakkur, إِنَّ فِي خَلْقِ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ وَاخْتِلَافِ اللَّيْلِ وَالنَّهَارِ لَآيَاتٍ لِّأُولِي الْأَلْبَابِ الَّذِينَ يَذْكُرُونَ اللَّهَ قِيَامًا وَقُعُودًا وَعَلَى جُنُوبِهِمْ وَعَلَى جُنُوبِهِمْ وَيَتَفَكَّرُونَ فِي خَلْقِ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ ربنا ما خلقت هذا باطلا سبحانك فقنا عذاب النار. Behold, 
in the creation of the heavens and the earth, and the alternation of night and day, there are indeed signs for men of understanding. Men who celebrate the praises of Allah, standing, sitting, and laying down, or lying down on their sides, and contemplate the wonders of creation in the heavens and the earth with the thought, Our Lord, not for naught hast thou created all this. Glory to you. Give us salvation from the chastisement of the fire. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying here that his servants contemplate in the creation of the heavens and earth. And they say, oh Allah, you have not created this in vain. There is purpose in creation. There is wisdom in everything that exists. Sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam sallam kathira. Please proceed to the next CD.